The American History Podcast, Season 1, Episode 1, The Americas Before Columbus. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Hello, and welcome to the American History Podcast, Episode 1, The Americas Before Columbus. Hopefully you've listened to the introductory episode, which gives you a little bit of information about the show and myself. If not, please go back and listen to it first. Also, feel free to email me any questions you might have or comments. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is AmericanHisCast. And lastly, please go over to iTunes and give us a review, or at least a rating. This helps others who are interested in American history find the show, and of course, the more, the merrier, as the saying goes. All right, so let's get into the content. Now, first, I think I want to say that you're going to find this episode both fascinating and informative because we're going to destroy some myths that many, if not most, Americans hold about Native Americans. Now, I've got four things that I'd like to cover today, and as I said, I want to destroy some myths, but I also want to discuss A, the number of Indians who are living or who were living in the Americas, B, what were they like, did they live in harmony with nature as we are often told or as it's portrayed in our culture, C, how did they get here, and then D, we'll briefly discuss Indians in various areas and how they lived. Now, the first question we're dealing with is what was the population of Native Americans who were living in the Americas in 1491? And this is uh, somewhat controversial, and it does vary given um, who you're reading. But something around 50 to 75 million Native peoples is kind of the accepted number right now. Now, at various points in history, it's been as low as maybe 10 or 8 million, while today, like I said, it's usually higher than 50. I will say that I have seen some people postulate it was upwards of about 100 million people. Again, these figures are hard to ascertain. We're using statistical analysis. But for the most part, it's accepted now that it was somewhere around 50 to 75 million people. What sort of lives did the people who have lived here, um, where, what were they like? Well, there's a variety of civilizations and cultural groups. These range from the highly developed Inca in South America to maybe the less developed nomadic groups who were living in North America. But either way, there was a vast variety of cultures here. Now we're going to get into some things that are maybe different than what some high school textbooks will tell you, which, for the most part, tend to follow the traditional narrative, which places... First of all, the native population far lower than what we just told you a few moments ago. Furthermore, thanks to the work of archaeologists such as Clark Erickson at the University of Pennsylvania, we now know that there were not only far more people here than previously imagined, but they changed their landscape, they changed their world, they built roads, canals, causeways, buildings, um, amongst other things. Now again, this is all highly controversial, but one might ask why. What's so controversial about the idea that natives changed the natural world? partly because it strikes at the heart of what we would call the environmental movement, which is motivated by something called the pristine myth. Often, they present the idea that the New World was similar to the biblical Garden of Eden, and Native peoples were without any history, living in a state that was never changing. They never changed. They never changed themselves. They never changed their culture. They never changed their environment. They never changed the land that they lived on. In essence, what you're saying, if you're out there promulgating this myth is that Native Americans had no history, because at the end of the day, history is change. Now, a second problem 
is that it strikes at the Wilderness Act of 1964, which, if you read it, part of it, there's one particular line in there that's, well, there's a lot in there that's controversial to me. Um, however, there's one particular line that I really dislike, and it says, these areas were untrammeled by man. Now, they're referring to the New World prior to European discovery as being untrammeled by man, which is, of course, absolutely insane. It's, it's total nonsense. Native Americans did travel upon the land. They were just like us. Um, they're not any different than we are. Not only do they put their pants on one leg at a time every morning, but they change their environment, and we have evidence of that. And so, of course, like I said, this is all ridiculous. Now, this idea that the people in the land had no history goes back at least to an archaeologist named Alan uh, Holmberg. Holmberg sorry. Now, um, his doctoral dissertation, which was published in 1950, is titled Nomads of the Longbow, and it was extremely influential, and it filtered down into the public consciousness in a way that most scholars can only dream of. Anyway, his idea was that the peoples of the New World just floated along aimlessly, century after century, for thousands of years, not changing anything, of course. Uh, this is utter ridiculousness. But it was based upon a study of a group of natives called the Sirionio. God, I hope I pronounced that right. Um, when he called the, what he called the most culturally backward peoples in the entire world. Holmberg noted that these people lived in a state of almost constant hunger, without clothes, no domesticated animals. They had no art. They had no music. They had no religion. It's almost like the John Lennon song, Imagine, um, come to life. Of course, there are problems with Holmberg, numerous ones, but I'm going to try to keep it brief. And I'll say that what he failed to notice or just didn't think about was that these people were the surviving members of a culture that had been shattered. They'd been shattered by disease. They were, due to their isolation and the cataclysm they had just survived, then forced to inbreed. Now, Charles Mann, the author of 1491, puts it best when he says that it was as if Holmberg had come across refugees from a Nazi concentration camp and thus concluded that they belonged to a culture that had always been barefoot and starving. To come to that conclusion would be quite obvious. Ridiculous. This is the conclusion that he came to with these native peoples. So what else did he miss? Well, he apparently failed to notice that the landscape had been altered by a society which inhabited the same region before the Sidiono arrived. This civilization, which, starting perhaps as early as 1000 BC, was able to create what some would say was one of the most ecologically rich artificial environments on the planet. What did they do? They created mounds for homes and farms. They constructed causeways and canals so that they could transport goods and whatnot. They burned savannas to keep the trees from encroaching upon their land. So this is not exactly the people that were envisioned by Holmberg, are they? Not only that, it's quite obvious um, evidence, this is evidence that the 1964 Wilderness Act and this whole idea of a land that was untrammeled by man is utter nonsense. So that's one myth that we've destroyed. Or maybe I should say that's a second myth we've destroyed. Now, how did the native peoples get here? Okay, well, your traditional story is that they arrived sometime around 11,500 before present via the Bering Strait, the so-called land bridge. And then over the next five centuries, they spread to the tip of South America. These people were big game hunters, and they're referred to as the Clovis people, thanks to the arrowheads that were found near Clovis, New Mexico, about a century ago. Now, the Clovis culture is typified by the fluted arrowheads and the belief that they hunted big game 
especially mammoths, extinct bison, mastodons, sloths, the horse that was at that point native to the Western Hemisphere, and even some smaller animals. For many years, indeed for basically the latter half of the 20th century, Clovis was the main theory amongst archaeologists and was even referred to as Clovis first. However, by the 1980s it was being challenged, and recently an article by Stuart Feidel, and I hope I got that right, in the Journal of Archaeology, research states, Clovis first is now dead, thanks to mitochondrial DNA evidence and the discovery of settlements in Monteverde de Chile, amongst other areas, it is now widely believed that there was a population in place before Clovis. Furthermore, it suggests a far earlier and far more complex peopling of the Western Hemisphere than what basically your 8th grade teacher probably told you. If that's the case, then how did they get here? Well, we really don't know, and that's the honest truth. There are several theories, and I think that the most likely thing is that it was through a combination of land routes along with various sea routes. People from Eastern Asia could easily have used the ocean and migrated to the Americas following the coast north and then coming down south along the west coast of the United States. They could also have come via the south. If you look at a globe, you're like, well, that's a huge ocean to cross. Believe me, I know I've crossed it several times back in my Navy days. But what you have to remember is the Polynesians made it almost completely across the Pacific. They settled Hawaii. And they weren't taking airplanes, I can assure you. The evidence is shaky for coastal migration, but it is likely that people used the water as a method of migration. And I think it's highly likely that they used a combination of these routes to get here. And they did so over a far longer period than what we previously thought. Now, some of the sites that have been dated, for example, the Old Crow site in the Yukon, they've dated might be as old as 50,000 years before present. While there's a French team that was working on a site in northeastern Brazil that might be as old as 48,000 years before present. So again, the settling started far earlier than once was believed, and it's much more complex. Alright, so if we look around the Americas, let's take a look at some of the different civilizations, and this is going to be very quick. At first, I plan on going in depth in, on some of these, but we're just going to take a quick overview, and then maybe, again, in a future bonus episode, we can do some in-depth looks at some of these areas or some of these peoples. All right, so Mesoamerica, you've got the Aztecs in Mexico, the Mayans in the Yucatan. Um, of course, earlier than the Aztecs, these guys all developed uh, advanced agricultural techniques that was based, for the most part, around corn. And so what are their achievements? You've got stone-carved cities that rivaled even the greatest cities of Europe back in the day. And all you have to do is watch Rogue One from Star Wars or Star Wars Episode Four. You can see the Mayan temples. The Aztecs also had amazing temples as well. Um, they studied mathematics and astronomy, for example. The Mayans developed the zero independently of the Eastern Hemisphere, which was developed by the Indians. Although they actually did it around the same time. And unless, I don't know, they had some sort of alien technology that allowed them to converse with each other, which I doubt. Um, the Mayans did develop it independently. Then you have the Inca. They developed a great, one of the greatest ever civilizations. Starting around the 13th century, their empire would last up until it was conquered by the Spanish in 1572. This was a huge empire, and they did it without the use of wheeled vehicles. Now think about that for a minute. How do you create an empire without the use of wheeled vehicles? I don't know, but it's pretty cool. Not only did they do it without wheeled vehicles, but they had no animals to ride, no animals to use to pull wagons, for example. So this is pretty amazing. Not only did they 
do that, um, they didn't have iron or steel. They had no system of writing. And yet, as Gordon McCown notes, and I hope I got that right, um, they created one of the greatest imperial states in all of human history without these four things that I would think would have been necessary for them to use. Now, if we move into North America, um, you don't really get the great empires like what you had in Central and South America. Um, for the most part, the native peoples in the North around the time of Columbus, um, they were semi-sedentary, living in small, scattered settlements of nomads. Others were non-migratory and self-sustaining thanks to the resources in their area. So if we look around, we would have seen, for example, the Chinook of the Northwest, skilled fishermen, elk hunters, um, typified, typified mostly by living in longhouses that could house as many as 50 people. If you move over to the Great Plains, you see mostly sedentary farmers living in permanent settlements. But there were nomadic people here and there, and they lived a mobile life using teepees for shelter, which could easily be broken down and then carried as they followed the buffalo across the plains. Later, of course, these people enhancing their hunting with the use of the horse, which they obtained from the Spanish. Um, as far as agriculture is concerned, many people had some sort of agriculture, but the most popular system was what's referred to as the Three Sisters, the use of corn, squash, and beans. You know, for the most part, men were the hunters, women were the gatherers, and the farmers, especially amongst the eastern woodland Indians, and this is an important point to remember, women did the farming amongst many of these native cultures. This is uh, going to lead to some somewhat of a culture clash between Europeans who wanted to turn native men into farmers and the Indians themselves who saw farming as women's work. Because these two cultures aren't really speaking the same language, and I just don't mean literally, but I mean figuratively, they're not going to really be able to come to an understanding. Now that many of the um, many of the American Indian societies were matrilineal and matrilocal, so for example, the Iroquois, the women owned the property. Um, for Indians, it was for the most part silly to acquire more than one could carry. Thus, in some ways, their culture was the antithesis of European culture. Now, having said that, there was extensive trade between native peoples. One example was trade in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valley. There was also trade in turquoise between Indians in New Mexico and Arizona and groups as far south as uh, Central and South America. Some of the more advanced societies in North America, like the Pueblo Indians of the Rio Grande Valley in New Mexico, Arizona, and southwestern Colorado, they were, of course, corn planters. That was made possible by large systems of irrigation that made the use of water in a very dry climate a, a possibility. Now, believe me, I've lived in this part of the country for most of my life, and it's very dry. And these people were able to do farming, but they also created multi-story terraced dwellings. Um, for example, you can look up Taos or Bandelier National Monument. Some of the Pueblo villages are still amongst the oldest in North America. If you move off, um, there were some other, of course, um, advanced civilizations in North America. The mound builders of the Mississippi and the Ohio River Valleys are some examples. Mississippian culture created basically based out of what is East St. Louis and was home to as many as 10,000 people at its height in 1200 AD. They built a central mound about 100 feet high. Um, that was the largest earthenwork in the world. And this was the largest city north of Mexico. These people used iron tools. They wore woven fabric. 
They buried their dead in collective graves. They conducted trade that spanned from the Atlantic to the Rockies and then all the way south to the Gulf of Mexico. So again, I'm not sure, but it sounds to me like these people were not living in an untrammeled wilderness. Now, if we move to the southeastern United States, you had the Creeks, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and the Cherokee. They began growing corn or maize, beans and squash sometime around 1000 AD. Then as we move up the east coast of the United States, we get into the eastern woodland Indians. Now, these people enjoyed the most abundant food resources in North America, as the eastern half of the continent was heavily forested. Many of these people were semi-sedentary as a result of this, so they took part in hunting, um, farming, gathering, and fishing. They pretty much had it pretty good. The Iroquois are an example. They built a strong military confederation led by Hiawatha in the late 16th century. They lived in what is the Mohawk Valley of today's New York State. Famously, they consisted of five nations, the Mohawks, the Oneidas, the Onondagas, the Cayugas, and the Senecas. The foundation of their culture was, of course, the Longhouse, which could be anywhere from 8 feet to 200 feet long. Pretty cool, I think. Um, you know, their economy was a mixture of hunting and gathering, but also agriculture. The Algonquin peoples, they were located along the northern Atlantic coast, the Great Lakes, the St. Lawrence River Valley regions. Similar to the Iroquois, they developed permanent settlements based on a combination of agriculture, hunting and gathering, uh, and fishing. They um, were the largest of all the North American language groups, the Algonquin. They lived in portable wigwams in the summer, and then in longhouses in the winter. Okay, so moving on to some religious differences between the various American Indians and Europeans. The Christian view was that of the Bible, and it said that God gave Adam dominion over animals and plants, and most, if not all, Europeans believed in this. The Bible does not mention, of course, American Indians. So what were they? Where did they come from? As Europeans came into the New World and they came across Native Americans, in some instances, they would have encountered sacrificial temples, skull, um, piles of skulls, cannibalism, snake motifs, for example, in, uh, for example, in Mesoamerica, things like that, that meant that, at least to the Europeans, you know, for example, the Aztecs, they thought they worshipped Satan. And um, that's in the European eyes, okay? That's not my eyes. Of course, this is all interesting when you consider that thousands, if not 100,000 or so, witches were killed in Europe sometime between 15 and 1700 AD. So the Europeans themselves were definitely not above sacrificing, depending on your interpretation of the word. You had the Spanish Inquisition, right? Burning thousands of heretics. American Indians could have looked at this and said, well, wait a minute now, these are human sacrifices too. So we've got to kind of put ourselves in the other person's shoes to try and see what's going on. Now, the American Indian view, the American Indians had nothing in comparison um, to commodification of plants and animals. They would have looked on and seen that the Christians ate their own God in the Holy Eucharist, but seemed less outraged at lesser human sacrifices to please the Indian gods. So I think the Indians, at least to some extent, would have said, you guys are a little hypocritical. The American Indians, as far as I'm aware of, they had no concept of heaven, at least not in the Christian sense. For the most part, from what I understand, they disliked the Christian heaven because few souls there were Indians, if any, and they preferred to be buried with their own ancestors. So there's a lot of religious differences that these two groups are going to have to try and overcome and probably not going to do a very good job of that. 
Now, warfare. Warfare, the differences in warfare, and uh, then we're going to wrap up this week. The American Indians were curious about why Europeans fought decisive battles on an open battlefield to the native. This seemed as a tremendous waste of human life that could have been used for replenishment, or you know, if you're not going to lose these lives, then why not sacrifice them to your god? What's the difference? American Indians were usually going to use guerrilla-type warfare, which the Europeans did not really take too well to. For their part, the Europeans had a hard time, and they could not easily catch the American Indian warriors. Again, because these were hit-and-run guerrilla warfare tactics. Um, and so what happens is that the Europeans um, are going to resort often to killing women and children. The Pequot War in New England during the 1630s was an example of gruesome warfare, gruesome warfare that took place there by the time of King Philip's War in the 1670s as well. American Indians had started to learn the lessons uh, that they had been taught from having warfare or fighting wars against the Europeans, and they ended up destroying Puritan villages and engaging non-combatants. American Indians often captured children of other tribes, and then they would assimilate them. Adult warriors often sacrificed were sacrificed in Mesoamerica. Um, now, if you were captured by the Aztecs and you were an adult warrior, uh, you were probably going to be sacrificed. The Iroquois had an all-night torture ritual for the, um, the morning waters where Iroquois women would seek retribution for the death of a loved one. So the Europeans are going to look at all of this and see it as barbaric. But the natives are looking at the Europeans and seeing some of the same things. Um, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that European weapons and what effect they would have on warfare. And the effect is pretty clear. European weapons will deeply intensify the warfare uh, between the Europeans and the natives, but also amongst the Native Americans themselves. For example, the Ohio region is depopulated by the late 17th century over just a matter of several decades when the Iroquois defeat the Hurons and the Algonquins. Um, they were using European weapons. By the 1690s, the French and the Algonquins will turn the tide, and they're going to force the Iroquois into neutrality. So we've kind of gotten out of our boundaries a little bit. Um, I said we would only talk about the natives before the European contact, but okay, I lied a little bit. Um, but that's what, that's what we're going to cover for this time. Um, I hope you find some of this, uh, these things interesting. And as you can tell, it's not clear-cut as maybe your 8th grade history teacher made it out to be. A little bit of controversy was in there, but hopefully nothing that will scare you away. And so we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. 